This morning we're reading through 1 Corinthians 5, and the whole chapter, and uh, 6 through 11. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual or immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is not those inside the church who are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge that evil person from among you. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you who is wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral or idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is God's word for us this morning. You may be seated. 
Well, good morning, Wakefield Church. Uh, thanks for gathering with us this morning. Uh, it's good to be here and to uh, open up God's Word and to uh, seek understanding, seek truth, seek wisdom for what it means to live life today. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I am the pastor here, along with some elders. Uh, and uh, it's good to have you uh, joining us this morning. Uh, we've been in the series, uh, you can see it on the screen, called Untangling Jesus. Uh, and now this doesn't mean that Jesus has gotten himself tangled up. Uh, this means that we have uh, tangled up Jesus in a whole bunch of things. Uh, and so one of the things that we're doing through this series is to say, okay, who really is Jesus? Uh, what is he really about? And then what does it mean then to follow him today? Because everywhere you look, someone is offering you a version of Jesus or a version of Christianity. It seems to go along with what they want you to believe or what they want you to do. And so uh, we're asking this question of then what does it actually mean to follow this Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible? And we're doing this through 1 Corinthians because this is what Paul, the apostle uh, who, who planted this church in Corinth, this is what he does for this church. Now, this church in Corinth had confusion, had uncertainty about how to live in light of all these things. And so Paul, in each chapter, he uh, addresses the questions that they're dealing with, and he brings it all kind of to this core thing of who Jesus is. And he says, in light of this, now here's how we should live. Uh, and so uh, that's kind of where we've been going through this series, trying to make sense of this question. Uh, and, uh, and as we get into this, right, one of the pictures, one of the metaphors that we've been using uh, is that following Jesus is uh, not like having an app on your phone. It's like having a new operating system. Right, so when I open up my phone, uh, I, I open up my GPS app when I want to get somewhere. I need directions. So I open up my GPS app. When I want to know uh, how my steps are doing, I open up my steps app to know how many steps have I taken. When I want to talk to a friend, I open up my messaging app and I text them. And so we have all these different apps to do different things that we want. And oftentimes that's how we treat Jesus or Jesus in the Bible. I open up the Bible app for things that I need to figure out about the Bible. But Paul says Jesus isn't just an app, or I guess he would say this if he lived in 2022. Jesus is not just an app, it's an operating system. It's how I live my life, and the operating system is how I move through the phone, how I move through life, how I make decisions, how I do the things that I have to do. And so uh, we've been looking at this over the, uh, over the past four chapters. We're now in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul is going to start addressing some of the specific questions where uh, the, the church is struggling. So if you have your Bible, I want, to, I want you to have it open to 1 Corinthians 5 if you've got it in a book, if you've got it on your phone. We have free Bibles here if you need one. Uh, but we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to look all the way uh, to chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, while you're turning there, I, I want to start here, because I, I put this up on the screen last week, uh, of these four kind of fundamental questions that we all have to ask. Uh, four fundamental questions that we all have to ask. Anywhere, anywhere you go, uh, any person or any belief system has to answer these four questions. The first question is a question of reality. What is real? Is what I experience in the world around me, is it there or is it a simulation? Is it a figment of my imagination? If it is real, then that's good. I can now work from that. If it's not real, then I have like an existential crisis and I have to figure out who I am, right? So if what is in front of me is real, then the second question is, okay, how do I know? Which is the question of truth. Where do I look to to help me make sense of this world? What is the authority that helps me understand what's in front of me? And once I know that, then the third question is, what does it mean to be human in this world? How do I live, and, and, and where do I fit in, 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 the, in the world that I live in? And then lastly, the fourth question then from that is, what's good? Or what is moral, or what is right, or what is just? And you see, these all build on each other. 
If the world is a certain kind of way and this is how I know, then how I live in that world matters. And, And the decisions that I make in that world then can be right or wrong, good or bad, depending on what it means to be human. And this is really foundational because what Paul has done in, in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is he's uh, addressed these. I think we have this on the next slide. We, he addressed these questions. The Corinthians, uh, they looked at things on the left. Uh, so they thought reality is kind of unknowable. We don't really know. There's lots of gods, lots of possibilities. And so truth is relative. Uh, and so that, that what it means to be human is to be an individual, to make a name for yourself. And so what is good, what's moral is kind of whatever works for you. But on the right, through these first four chapters, Paul has answered these questions in a different way. In the, in the operating system of the cross, he said the fundamental reality in chapter 1 is Christ crucified. That who God is, is not just kind of any old God, but he is Jesus, specifically Jesus on the cross. He is how we know God and how we experience God. In chapter 2, then, he addressed the question of truth. How do we know this? He says we, this is revealed to us. God tells us about himself. He gives us what we need to know about him. Chapter 3, then, he said, what does it mean to be human? He said, you are God's temple. But to be human is to live in this kind of spirit-filled community in light of God, following after what he wants. And so then what is moral or what is good? He's going to lay this out over and over and over again, that what is moral then or what we should do is selflessness, which is living in light of the God who gave himself up for us. We then give ourselves up for others. And this is really foundational because everywhere else we're going to go over the next series, the next part of the series is going to address specific questions, and particularly specific questions about this word sin. And this word sin kind of is really like you may even have like a bodily response when you hear that word because maybe uh, that's been used against you before. Someone's like, oh, you sinner. Uh, or, or you kind of think about, ooh, we're going to have some arguments over what is sin and what's not sin. But if the column on the right is the world that we live in. If this is God's world, and if he has revealed truth to us, then our job as humans is to figure out, okay, what does that truth mean? But that also means that sin, as we think about sin, is in relation to who God is, but also that sin is dehumanizing. I think that's important to get, because oftentimes we think sin is kind of like, well, here's this list of bad things I shouldn't do. But if God created us to live in a particular kind of way, and if sin deviates from God's plan, then sin actually makes us less human, not more. It actually changes or corrupts something about who we are and what it means to live in God's world. That's really important to get because I think sometimes we start talking about sin and we start to think that God's like this cosmic buzzkill. He just doesn't want you to live a happy, like, he doesn't want you to be happy. He just wants you to follow the rules. But no, God actually, when he thinks about who humans are, when he created us a particular way, he created us for joy and for pleasure and for a life following him. And so sin is not just like a list of things. I'm not supposed to do these things. No, it's actually, if you go this way, it actually is going to lead to, to destruction and dehumanization. That's going to be really important again because in chapter 5, Paul's going to start talking about the word sin. Uh, And in chapter 5, he's addressing a particular sin, but he's going to kind of expand it to talk about sin in general. And he's going to begin this this journey through the next several chapters uh, by helping us get a better idea of what sin is and particularly why sin is dangerous. And so as we look at what Paul is going to say in chapter 5 and chapter 6, we're just going to look at three things. We're going to look at the danger of sin, So why is sin so dangerous? Why is it that Paul is so concerned about it? 
Second, we're going to look at the deliverance from sin. What does it take to be delivered from sin and set free from sin? And then third, we're going to talk about how we deal with sin. How we deal with sin. So first, we're going to talk about the danger of sin. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, uh, take a look at there if you have it in front of you. Paul says this, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And your arrogance ought you not rather to mourn. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So Paul has received this report that in this church there is this uh, sexual affair that has taken place between this man and his stepmother. Now we don't know exactly the details of this relationship, but we do know that it's, it's sexual in nature because that word sexual immorality, Paul uses the Greek word porneia. And as you can imagine, that word porneia, you think about pornography or pornographic, that's where we get that word. Uh, and so whatever this affair looked like, it was sexual in nature. But Paul also tells us that it was not even tolerated among the pagans. And that's, that's something really significant, because the Corinthian culture that they lived in prided itself on its sexual freedom. In fact, to be called a Corinthian man in that culture meant that you were sexually free. You were very sexually active in the world that you lived in. And so Paul says this, that world looks at you and they can't even tolerate what you are tolerating. So that tells us something really significant about what is happening. It's almost like this, this picture that, that, that when this couple comes in the church, like people are giving them high fives and pats on the back. Like, good job. But Paul says, rather than that, you should be mournful. And in chapters, or sorry, verses 3 through 5, Paul then says, uh, not only that, you should expel this guy. You should cast him out so that he can learn a lesson. And when we read that, I don't know how, I don't know how you feel when you read that, but like when I read that, I'm kind of like, oh, like Paul, like you're kind of intense, right? Like, like we would read that and say, well, Paul, this guy's on a journey. And he's like figuring himself out. You know, I mean, maybe they found love. Right? We would look at that and we'd say, like, well, let's, let's offer, like, what about grace? Paul says, no, you need to deal with this guy because sin is dangerous. And so in verse 6, before we get to verse 6, so I think one of the things that's important there, right, is whenever you come across one of those places in the Bible where where you're like, oh, this feels a little off. I'm not sure, like, I'm quite on board with this. I think it's really important to pay attention to that. Like, so we read Paul, and he sounds super intense, and we say, Paul, can you just like dial it down a little bit? Like, what about love? What about acceptance? But oftentimes what happens is we read this and we sort of judge it. And we kind of put Paul kind of in a space where we're like, Paul, I'm not sure that you're right. But maybe when we find our pla- ourselves in those places where it's a little bit like it, doesn't rub- it rubs us the wrong way, uh, maybe it's a space for us to say, okay, how does my attitude about this not line up with the Bible? Like, maybe I think my attitude is right, but maybe my attitude is wrong. Because if Paul says this, and, and he, we, we believe that it's inspired by the Holy Spirit, then maybe my attitude about this issue is off, not Paul. And so he's going to give us a picture for why sin is dangerous in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Which is kind of a weird phrase. It's like all of a sudden Paul changed the channel to the Great British Baking Show. 
Like, oh, I didn't, Paul, I wasn't really looking for a recipe. What, so what's he saying? He gives us this picture of sin as yeast. Right? So I bought a little yeast packet this morning. Uh, if you do any baking, you know how yeast works, right? Yeast is just, I don't, I don't actually know what it is, but it's like this little like, thing that you put into a bowl with sugar and, and some water, and all of a sudden it kind of it causes things to grow and to expand, right? So if you bake bread, you put yeast in it. Uh, and so what he's saying is this. Sin looks very little at the beginning, but sin always grows. And so the danger of sin is that it begins with this very small thing, like, oh, that's not that big a deal. But before you know it, if you're not paying attention, it begins to grow. It begins to get more significant. And so he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, you allow a little sin into your life, it begins to grow. Before you know it, it's taking over the whole thing. So I just wanted to illustrate this. So I I actually mixed some bread up this morning. Uh, This is not good bread. You should not eat this when I'm done. I haven't cooked it. But uh, this is just water with uh, yeast and sugar and flour. Uh, and I mixed it up. So this does not have yeast. Right? So 7 a.m. this morning, I made this. This is unleavened. Paul says, this is who you are. This is what we're called to be. That same exact same ratio with yeast in it has grown to this size in just a matter of a couple of hours. And he says, this is what sin does. Is if you're not careful, you put a little bit of sin in your life following Jesus, and it begins to grow and to expand, and before long, it's taken over the whole thing. And so sin is really dangerous because it grows. And before long, it actually spills over and begins to affect not just you, but other people. Right? And so, so Paul's given us this picture to say, you need to be watchful of this stuff. Be mindful of the ways in which you're allowing a little bit in because before long, it's going to overtake the whole thing. So like in this instance, this guy in this relationship with his mother-in-law or his stepmom, we don't know how this started. But Paul shows us that not only is this sin the sin that happened, but it also has led to pride in the community. And so this one sinful relationship has now led to a whole bunch of people being sinful because they're now arrogant and they're boastful and they're proud. And he says that your attitude is wrong in that. So that sin actually affected the whole community. I think this is why in chapter 6, Paul goes super randomly to lawsuits. Right? Like if you look at what Paul is saying, in chapter 5, he's talking a lot about sexual immorality and then he just like skips to lawsuits and then comes back to sexual immorality in verse 12. And you're like, Paul, would you stay on topic? But in effect, what he's saying in, verse, in chapter 6 is that these two people had a conflict. And they couldn't, they couldn't work through that conflict. And before long, it grew into a bigger thing. And, and then they kind of maybe rallied people on their sides. And before long, it spilled out of the church into the public sphere. And now this conflict that could have been resolved if we had just come together now, it has this ripple effect of sin and brokenness. And so it's actually causing the world to look in and say, is this what the way of Jesus is about? Because sin always tends to grow. And I think if we were reflective on our own life, I think we could all give stories in which that happened. Or something really small, like this little bag of yeast, it didn't seem like that big of a deal. Before long, it grew into something more. A little untruth becomes a lot of untruth. And that untruth spills over and starts affecting relationships around you. It leads to conflict and misunderstanding and even broken relationships. A little giving into temptation becomes a larger temptation. A little soothing with a little, a little drink right, or a little, a little drug becomes a whole addiction. Why? Because sin always grows. 
always grows. And what happens is as it grows, like you can't go through here and I'm going I'm to pick the leaven out of this. It's all part of the thing. And so not only does it grow, it begins to kind of even corrupt our way of thinking. And so now I'm trapped. I'm stuck. This is actually, I mean, if you look at how like social media is, is designed, social media understands this. Like especially the latest social media, it's built around algorithms. And the way that that works is the more attention you give to something, the more it's going to feed you that. And so you spend half a millisecond more looking at, at one thing, and it's going to factor that in and start to feed you more. And so this is why you could open up TikTok on one person's phone, and it's just cute cat videos. But if you open up TikTok on someone else's phone, it's all, it's all sexually suggestive material. Why? Because they hesitated for half a second as they were looking at that thing, and the algorithm factor that it just keeps feeding that to you. Because sin always grows. And so what do we do with that then? If, if it's all mixed up, if it's all in here, how can we be delivered from the danger of sin? That's where Paul goes in verse 7. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Now, so what is it? Are we leavened? Are we unleavened? And Paul seems to say both, but in a sense, what he's saying is this. Remember who you really are. Remember who you really are. And who are we? Verse, uh, later on in that verse, he says, For Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. See, when he turns to deliverance from sin, he doesn't go to, okay, here's how you need to fix your sin problem. Here's how you need to overcome this. Here's how you need to become a better person or add better habits to this. Instead, he goes to an Old Testament story. In fact, one of the most Old Testament stories, or most important Old Testament stories in the book of Exodus. If you're familiar with the Bible, it's probably one of the stories that you're familiar with. The story of how God rescued the Hebrew people who were enslaved in Egypt. And that story becomes a template or a metaphor for how Paul is going to invite us to consider how we're delivered from sin. Because in the book of Exodus, the people of, uh, of the Hebrews are enslaved. And so in Paul's imagination, as he thinks about what sin does, sin actually enslaves us. It's not just that sin is like, oh, I do this and then I, I like broke a rule. No, it's that sin actually is this power that keeps you enslaved. It keeps infecting and affecting everything around us. And so when God rescues the Hebrew people, what does he do? He tells them to do two things. And there are two things that Paul picks up and, and lays out in this. The first is this, that a Hebrew family was supposed to take a spotless lamb and slaughter that lamb and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of the house. And God said, on the night that I judge sin, on the night that I, that I purge sin from this place, any house that has the blood on the doorpost will be saved. That sounds like a really weird thing, right? But God doesn't say, okay, be a little bit better this week, and then I'll, I'll, I'll set you free. And he says, I need you to demonstrate an act of allegiance or an act of belief in who I am and what I'm asking you to do. And so on the night that God judged sin, God would pass over these homes. That's where the word Passover comes from. And they would be in the house, and in the house they would be doing a particular thing. They'd actually be celebrating a festival. And in that festival, they would have rid the house of all the yeast that they had. They would have broken unleavened bread in that house, and they would be celebrating this festival as sin is being judged outside. And if you were under the blood of the doorpost in that home, you were safe. You were set free. 
And so what does Paul say? He says, for Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. That for us, the same thing has happened only in a truer and a more complete way. Is that back then you were saved if you were under the bloody doorpost, but now you are saved if you are under the bloody cross of Jesus. That Jesus took on our sin for us. And so how am I delivered from my sin? I am first delivered from my sin by the cross of Jesus. And all that it takes is to be under that cross, to be guarded by that cross, to be shielded by that cross. And I think that's really important, again, because when we talk about sin, you might think, man, I got so much. Like, like I don't know what's good and what's bad in me anymore. Uh, maybe you start to feel the, 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 like the consequences of sinful decisions kind of chasing you down. You start to see it spilling out across all of your life. You start to say, how can I ever be saved? Christ, your Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. It's already happened. And so what does it take to be delivered from this sin? You don't have to clean up the mess. You don't have to take care of the spill. No, you, you come under the doorpost. You come under the cross of Jesus. He paid for your sin for you. And in that festival, what would they do? They, they would get rid of all the leaven. So what does Paul say? He says, Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So we're delivered from the danger of sin by the cross of Jesus. And what do we do in response as we rest under the cross, as we rest under what Christ has done, what do we do in response? Let us therefore celebrate the festival. That's what would be happening in the house as the sin would be judged, as God would pass over. Let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and, and evil. Evil is like, okay, the stuff that I do, but also malice is like, is like the evil intent of my heart. You see, sin ultimately begins in my heart when I love something other than Jesus. And I love something other than what he calls me to. And so not only are we set free from the actions that I do, we're set free from the evil intent of our heart. And so what do we do in response? We celebrate the festival, we get rid of the old leaven, and we're called to live a life of sincerity and truth. And what is sincerity? It's being real. It's being honest. It's being open. And open to what? Open to the truth of who God is and what he calls me to do. You see, we deal with sin in our life in response to what Christ has done. And I think that's really important to get because, you know, sometimes I think we believe that we're saved by grace, like God offered us Jesus, and we're saved by grace when he died for us on the cross, but then the rest of our life is like working to prove that we deserved it. And so we're saved by Jesus, but then we act as if that grace does not still operate in our life. But you see, we only ever overcome the power of sin through the cross of Jesus, through what he has done for us. And it's only as that becomes our heartbeat, as that becomes the thing that we look to, that then sin will start to lose its luster. It will start to lose its appeal. Why? Because our heart has been changed by the love of Jesus. And out of that heart change, then we are sincere. Then we are truthful. Then we live lives in response by getting rid of stuff. Which means that like, if you're here right, and you think, man, how do I even begin to do this? It's only ever through the cross of Jesus. And so when we deal with sin, we can never get past that. 
We can never get past the cross of Jesus because that is the source of the power. Not us trying to to change our own lives, but Christ changing us through what he did for us. And so if we're delivered by the cross of Jesus, and our response to that is to rid our life from sin as we can, as God gives us the ability to do that, then how do we deal with sin? How do we actually deal with sin in our lives? Because here's the thing, we still deal with it. I've been a follower of Jesus for like, I don't know, 25-some years. I still deal with sin. I still deal with a bunch of stuff in my life. So how do I, what does it look like to deal with this? I just have three things from what Paul says here for us as we think about dealing with sin in our own lives. The first is this. We come under the cross of Jesus. We come under the cross of Jesus. And this is really important because what Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 5, basically verse 9 through verse 13, he says this. Stop judging the world. Like, stop, like, stop looking at people who are outside of the way of Jesus and stop judging them for their sin. Because after all, someone who has not come under the cross of Jesus does not have the power to overcome sin. And, and, and that's really important to get because, because Paul is laying this out. He says this, if you want to judge the sins of the world, like, you're going to judge everyone out of existence. He says you'd have to leave the world. And so he says this, he says, God judges those outside. He says that's God's business. Why? Because what is God doing? What is God doing in the world? God is actively drawing people to himself. He's drawing people to the cross of Jesus. And so so how can anyone be saved by sin or saved from sin? How can anybody come into this space where they're no longer a slave to sin? It is only and always by the cross of Jesus. And so as we go throughout our world or we live lives in, 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 in a world that has uh, lots of people who fit in the categories of sin that Paul lays out here, what is the hope that we're offering people? What is it that we're holding out to people? Are we holding out to them, hey, you need to act like I do? Or you need to do the things that I do. You need to stop sinning. Because until they know Jesus, they cannot stop sinning. And so what are we called to do as a church? What are we called to do as followers of Jesus? We're called to hold out Jesus to people. And this is why what Paul says in chapter 6, verse 9, is so important. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he has this whole long list of, of the kind of people he's talking about. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He says, these kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you're like, hmm, all those things? But here's the thing, what does Scripture tell us? No one is righteous. You see, oftentimes we read that verse and say, uh, do you not know that the unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God? And we look at the list and say, okay, I'm not one of those people. Good, I'm in. But that's not how the cross of Jesus works. None of us are righteous. And so how do we get in? How do we become righteous? Not by becoming a better person. We become righteous only through the righteousness of Jesus. Only through the cross of Jesus and what he accomplished for us. And this is why what Paul says in verse 11 is so important. He says, such were some of you. 
You see, we could look at that list and we could, we could talk about who that is and how that applies to people and what that looks like. Is that sin or is that not sin? But what Paul says is this, none of us are righteous enough to get into the kingdom of God. And so how do you get into the kingdom of God? Not by becoming more righteous. Not by becoming a better person. You get into the kingdom of God only through faith in Jesus and through coming out of the bloody cross of him. And so whatever it was that this church was doing, this church was holding out the, the, the cross of Jesus so much so that people who fit in each one of these categories, who each one of these labels applied to, had found belonging in this place so that they could hear about Jesus and have their lives transformed. And so what does it mean for us as a church? And I just kind of, I kind of like dream, I kind of imagine like, like, what would it be for us to be a church full of people such was I? That's who I was. I fit in that category. That sin applied to me. But I met Jesus. You see, Paul is very clear. He says, such were some of you. So how did you, how did you transform? How did you change? What program did you go through? What curriculum did he go through? How, how did you transform? What does he say in verse 11? But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. How? In the name of Jesus. In fact, in the Greek, there's, there's three but words there. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. He's very clear that when you come into the cross of Jesus, there is a fundamental change that happens. A fundamental change that happens in your life that before you were all of these things, before you were, you, you were a swindler, you were sexually immoral, like you could look at this list and say, each one of us was one of these things and more. But when we came into the cross of Jesus, what happened? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. Those are all passive verbs. Those are not, you didn't wash yourself, you didn't sanctify yourself, you didn't justify yourself. No, who did? Jesus did those things. And so how am I made righteous? How, how am I freed from my sin? Only through Jesus. Which means that if you look at this list or any of the lists that Paul has talked about in these verses, and you think that, that applies to me. Or you think about a friend of yours or a family member of yours, you say, that applies to them. What do, you, what, do we, what do we need to hold out to you? We need to hold out to you the cross of Jesus. Because that is the only thing that makes you righteous. So how do I deal with sin? If it's anything other than the cross of Jesus, it's not going to fix the problem. But when you come to Jesus and you rest on the cross of Jesus, those three things happen to you. You are washed. Which means whatever grime or sin or guilt or shame you carried is washed away by the blood of Jesus. It's cleansed from you. It goes down the drain and never comes back. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set on high, to be set apart, to be given a seat of honor at God's table. And unless you be concerned that you screw it up and somehow get kicked out of the table, you're also justified. And what does it mean to be justified? It means that your, your position there is secure. Your, your belonging in God's kingdom is established, but it's not by you, it's by Jesus. And so how are, we, how are we washed? How are we sanctified? How are we made righteous? It is only through Jesus. And so if you're here this morning, you think, I can never be good enough. You can't be good enough, but that's not the point. 
It is only the cross of Jesus that makes you righteous. And the moment that we forget that, the moment that we forget that as a community is the moment that we are no longer offering people the good news of the gospel. So come under the cross of Jesus and invite people in. Second, if you are under the cross of Jesus, confess. Confess to one another. You see, Paul says, back in chapter 5, uh, verse 7, he says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, for you really are unleavened. Confession is the process of naming this, the sin that we still carry. Because oftentimes we get caught up because we're hiding our sin. But, but if coming under the cross of Jesus cleanses us, us of our sin, if that is the power that we are set free uh, by, then when we confess our sins, we're saying, this is what I'm carrying. This is the sin that I'm, I'm still working through. I mean, how else would Paul know in chapter 6, verse 9, that all these people were in the church if they had not confessed that? And so when we confess our sins one to another, we are reminding ourselves of the good news of Jesus that says that there's no one righteous. And so when someone confesses sin, we're not shocked. Why? Because that's exactly what the Bible says would happen. But what do we do? Come under the cross of Jesus. I think this is really important because sometimes in confession when someone says, hey, this is what I'm struggling with or this is the sin that I'm carrying, we start to move into advice mode. Which is like, well, you need to try this. Like, try this strategy or try to do this thing. But if our solution to sin does not involve the cross of Jesus, it's not going to work. And so when someone confesses to you or someone is open in a group that like, this is what I'm struggling with, take them to the cross of Jesus. What did he do for you? And so let's not be afraid to confess to one another. Third, lastly, it's cut off or cut out. Cutting out. What is cutting out? It's saying, in whatever power I have, how can I remove the temptation of sin from my life? Right? Paul is clear that like we respond to the gospel of Jesus by cutting things out that get in the way of that or could threaten to tarnish that. And that is not legalism, that is love. Right? Legalism says you have to do these things in order to earn the love of God. But this is saying, because of the love of God, I'm going to reorient my life around him. Right? Like when, when Kelly and I got married, part of our covenant was that uh, you say you forsake all others. Why? Because I found the one that I love. I found the one that I want to follow, that I want to be with. And so in light of that, everything else I'm going to, I'm going to put aside. And so out of a response of the love of God, we say, okay, God, I'm going to love you enough that I'm not going to love this as much. And, and, and again, that's not trying to earn the love of God. That's responding to the love of God. So, so like, what does that look like? Like, some of y'all, you just need to install, like, content filters on your phone. Like, that's, that's super easy to do. I will do it before you go to lunch today. Like, maybe it's an app on your phone that just keeps generating, like, temptation just uninstall the app like like maybe it's 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 a it's an addiction that you have right? confess that and come to recovery you see like the reason why we make this so complicated is because we actually still love the sin and we're afraid of giving it up but christ gave up his life for you because he loves you 
And he wants you to live the life that he calls you to live, a life of being washed, being sanctified, of being justified. And so respond to his love with a similar love. Say, I want to give you what I got for your name and for your glory. So I end tonight, uh, this morning, in a little bit of a different place. Uh, I want to invite you to just uh, take a moment of reflection this morning. If you want to close your eyes, nothing weird is going to happen, but I just want to invite you into a space of reflection this morning. And this morning, maybe you're here, and you, you're here because you think church is a good fix to your sin. Or because you think being religious is going to set you free. But you have never actually turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus. I want to challenge you this morning that you're on a hamster wheel that you'll never get off of. But Christ has died to set you free. And he is the source of how you can be made new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. It's not that the old has been worked through. The old is gone and you are washed and sanctified and justified. And so if you're here this morning and that has never been true of you, but you're tired of living in the sin, I invite you this morning to respond. To come under the cross of Jesus. To turn from your sin and to trust in him. I'm going to ask you to do that in kind of a little bit of a bold way because part of this is we have to be bold about this stuff. Bold about confronting sin and stuff. That's you with eyes closed in the room and you just say, I I need to turn from my sin and trust in Jesus for the first time. Would you just slowly raise your hand up for the first time? If you're watching online, you can do the same thing. Just in that space, say, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm tired of being enslaved to this sin. Would you set me free? In that moment, you were washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Maybe this morning you have come under the cross. Maybe you've been there for a while and there's some leaven in your life some yeast that you've allowed in and it's starting to, starting to make a mess of things. And maybe this morning the Holy Spirit is inviting you to cut some of that out, to confess that, to name that. So I want to invite you this morning, if that's where you are this morning, you say, I, I see the leaven, I need to cut it out. Would you just raise your hand, eyes closed this morning? I need to cut out some sin in my life. My heart wants this. I just want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for our church, but I want to pray for you this morning if you feel the weight of this. That you would experience the freedom that the Spirit wants to bring you. That you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified. And to respond in light of that. God, I pray for those who've raised their hands this morning. Uh, maybe even those who are watching this morning online and they're, they're feeling the weight of this. They see the leaven. They see the yeast. They see how it's starting to spill out in other places. Holy Spirit, would you show them Jesus? He is the Passover lamb that we need. And so when we come under the cross, we are washed, we are sanctified, we are justified. God, would you give those who've raised their hands this morning boldness, boldness to cut it out. Not because that somehow makes us better, but because that's what love calls us to do. And God, may we be a place that is full of stories and says such were some of us, but we were washed. We were made new, and we rest under the cross of Jesus. We celebrate the festival, and we invite everyone to come in 
and celebrate what you've done with us. It's the name of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray these things. Amen.